Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music, music teachers. You're listening to episode 69 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and in this show, I'm sharing an interview with Chris Galetsky all about teaching preschoolers in group music classes. Welcome back, beautiful teachers. As you may have heard on a previous episode or elsewhere, I have a new book out, Playful Preschool Piano Teaching. This book is all about how to teach preschoolers from a general perspective, not using one specific methodology or one specific approach, but general best practices. And so as I put together this book, I interviewed three different wonderful teachers to share their experiences, to learn from them about what was working for them so that I could get as broad a perspective on teaching these young fingers, uh, these tiny little fingers, how to play the piano and all about music. And so as part of my preparation, I interviewed these three women. The first one was Chris Skeletsky. And so I'm sharing the interview that I did with Chris here on the show now that the book has come out and all the secrets can be revealed. Chris Skeletsky is the creator and publisher of Kitty Keys, piano and music all-star teaching materials. She has over 35 years of experience leading piano lesson programs and preschool music, teaching in both home and school settings in Green Bay, Wisconsin. In 2015, Chris partnered with Jennifer Eklund of Piano Pronto to co-author the Road Trip Piano Books for Young Beginners. She has recently released Piano Playground and Under the Sea Piano Books for Rote Learning and Note Learning. A lifelong Green Bay area resident, Chris and her husband Jack have two grown children. An avid Green Bay Packers fan, Chris also enjoys tending her flower beds and a morning cup of coffee on her front porch. I'm so excited to welcome Chris to the show. Okay, welcome Chris and thank you so much for joining me. I'm very happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. Fantastic. So first, I'd love if you could tell us just a little bit about you. I've told people about what you do at Kitty Keys, but just a bit about your background, maybe, and how you came to teaching, how you arrived at I come from probably like many teachers, a very musical background. I was born on a very small family farm in a, in a little town of population uh, 536. And uh, I'm very fortunate that because I came from a musical family and there was a strong arts culture, even in our small little farming community. Um, So it was um, almost expected that you would take 
band player and participate in piano lessons. I always wanted a horse personally. I tell this story often that I, I wanted a horse. Um, my older sister Lynn wanted a piano and she went out. We got a piano and my father jokingly put a saw horse outside the front door and said that that in fact was our horse. It turns out they were wise to get a piano because uh, it took me a little while to appreciate the fact that I had piano lessons. Um, I fought it for many, many years. So, and my, my parents met in a music and, um, event as well. So I think I come by music um, through my genetic upbringing and as well as the, the external, the environmental factors. And I think that uh, that was a big part of where I came from. And then eventually, uh, I wasn't planned. Somebody asked if I would teach their child piano lessons. And um, I thought, well, absolutely, that's something I can do, and uh, started teaching piano. So uh, not a very auspicious beginning to my piano teaching career, but uh, I, when I look back, I think that all roads were certainly leading to that point when I eventually realized that that was what the sign was telling me to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of teachers are that way, that they sort of meander through various paths, and then they arrive at teaching and realize that was where they were supposed to be. Absolutely. Um, oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, go um, ahead. You know, all those those stops along the way, I mean, I worked in retail, I worked in customer service, I worked in an accounting department, I went to college as well, but I I think all of those stops along the way, you know, taught me the value of customer service, you know, treating my piano parent clients well. So they were all important. I'd give none of them up. Yeah, that's fantastic. So when did preschoolers feed into the equation? Was that was one of the first students you were asked to teach a preschooler or when did you arrive at teaching young students? Well, I am older. And so back then, um, it, it, it was people would ask what age is the ideal, ideal age for a student to begin lessons. And it was second grade, in the, at least for us locally, that was maybe eight or nine years old. So no, my first students were in preschoolers. In fact, that wasn't even in the realm of teaching back then. I know that there were programs that existed, but they didn't exist in my world here locally. So um, I, my first student was a second grader. I remember distinctly telling people, nope, they should wait until second grade, which is funny for me to look back, Nick, 35 years later, um, how that world has just, it, it went down to first grade. And then it crept down to five-year-olds. And then it crept to four-year-olds. And now we're talking two and two and a half and three-year-olds taking lessons. So it's that whole perspective of time, isn't it? How much it changes. And as teachers, we really have to either roll along with that and understand that it exists and find a way to work within the parameters of that world or say, that's not my world and this is where I'm going to stay because that's not, I'm well suited. So no, not at all. Preschoolers were not taking piano lessons back when I started teaching. Yeah. So when did you get into that area then? When did you first start exploring teaching young students or did it gradually creep down as you're saying the general trend went? So the trend in lessons crept down where my focus on preschool music, which was more with a pre-piano focus than actual mm -hmm. piano lessons, because that's really more of what Kitty Keys is, it's a piano prep, was when those young parents of two and two and a half and three-year-olds, the younger siblings of my students and other people locally started asking for lessons for mm -hmm. their young children. And I really kind of had to make a decision at that point. If that was really where I wanted to go, did I want to go into one-on-one -on -one preschool lessons with literally a two and a half, a three-year-old, three and a half, a four-year-old, or a half-year-old, or did I see my teaching strategy going in a different direction? And it was at that moment that I chose to 
go into more of the group format, that would be a piano prep program because I really believe strongly in developmental. The, the developmental needs of a child outweighing their needs to sit to practice and perform. And I'm not saying perform as in getting up at a recital, but I'm talking more about that, that need to sit at a bench and have at home practice. So my steerage didn't go into preschool one-on-one lessons, if you will. My went into having group classes and it was born out of that local need. People coming then and asking for something like that. And I knew that other programs existed I, first of all, I believe little children can learn. The, the, the takeaway from this shouldn't be that they aren't capable. I always say children can't surprise me. They can impress me, but I believe that they can, and that's why they impress me, but they don't surprise me with what they can learn. So my belief isn't based on the thought that they can't take piano lessons. Mine is based on the fact that they've got a lot of time to practice and sit on the bench and learn songs in a specific trajectory that's geared towards them learning piece after piece after piece. I felt that I could give them all of the foundation and let it be very creative based about self-expression, improvising, and letting them move and explore and play while they learn to play, if you will, before they had to take formal steps. So that's kind of where, that where, my, where my mind was. It was not in a formal lesson. And even that has evolved. So Initially, it was, you know, group classes, and as that age has wafted down and people definitely want lessons for their three-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old or four-year-old, I found that we had to marry and, and adapt our curriculum a bit to work alongside methods that existed for those that really do want that child to be on, on the piano. And does that kind of mirror what you've seen also? Although you're much younger than me. In terms of the age moving down, yes, for sure. And preschool lessons are still very much not the norm here. So I'm quite unusual, actually, for teaching students. I teach from three and a half, basically, up. So that's actually still pretty unusual here. There are group music programs, but they're very much not even piano prep. The general, the more normal thing would be to do a music and movement thing, maybe, at that age. But... Even after that, there's not a lot until they're seven. Like that's still the advice that's given. And that's what I would have said when I started teaching, which is quite a while ago too. But I would have said, yeah, seven. They can't start before seven. I never, just because it was the standard advice that you gave, you know? Right, you're right. And I think that it was, must have been tied to the, the skill of reading. Reading, reading, comprehension. Because that's about where that, that measure hits in school. And Many methods now. I, I, I co-authored Road Trip with Jennifer Eckland, and we took all of that reading component out of the books. All of that is in a separate teaching guide because there is there is not this preconceived notion that a child has to be able to read any longer, yeah. right? I think that was they needed to understand what the directions were on the page. Yeah. Well, yeah, or that they weren't capable of note reading because they couldn't read English or their their first language. And therefore, they couldn't take lessons because lessons were just reading. I don't know. I think we've come a long way since then. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we definitely have, and, and for a good reason, right? There, why do they? Why do children receive uh, second language so well when they're young? Well, I think music is no different, right? And we all know that. I mean, that's kind of standard knowledge. It's a language. Exactly. Yes, definitely. So, where do you land these days on the whole group versus private debate? Do you still think group is best, but some parents want the private? Or is there an age where you say, okay, if they're over four or over five, then private is better? Where do you land on that? 
Right. Me personally, I still land in the group department because I really like the social interaction of a group. I like, and I like mixed age groups. I haven't, I like to put a two and a half, a three-year-old with a four or five-year-old if the five-year-old's not ready for mm-hmm. lesson. Because I think that they, they can be encouraged to model what we would do in our day-to-day lives, right? If, if we're with the group of piano teachers, we don't put all the 30-year-old teachers together, all the 35-year-old teachers together. We're positive peer mentors for each other. Mm-hmm. And I have seen two and a half year olds with better fine motor skills than some four and a half and five year olds. So, you know, they're developmentally wherever they happen to be. So my camp is still, I like them in group and I can always adapt and include rope teaching materials to expound upon, to challenge them. Again, multi-age, if I have a three-year-old that's ready to learn a song, they'll get a rope piece and they can learn a song. But I can do everything I would do in a piano lesson, but they get the social structure of a group and that heavy leaning towards music and movement, which I think is just at the core of any preschool class. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So how long are your lessons then and how many kids in a group? Do you know? So I haven't taught for a number of years because... Yeah. To a certain point, I stopped teaching. So, and I always tell teachers when they ask this question, everyone's got their sweet spot. It's like teaching piano, right? For some, mm-hmm. a six-year-old is as young as they want to go. And I used to teach elementary school and I'd have classes of 25 kindergartners. So for me, having, you know, 10 or 12 children in a class wasn't a, a big deal. But I think the sweet spot is probably anywhere from, depending on the children, anywhere from four to eight. Because That's what I always say as well, yeah. Four exactly right. You can have <laughs> you can have four little rowdy gents in front of you, and that's plenty. Yeah. And then you, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then you could have this group of six or eight that you know they're just totally focused on the the academics behind it, and and they are they're just in a different place developmentally. So I would say maybe six to eight is my you know my happy spot. I like to see a good amount for social interaction. I think, again, that's such a big part of that they have their whole lives to sit on a piano bench by themselves. I also like group piano lessons for that reason. I think I just like the social structure. So um, I, I like the groups and you just have to temper it, right? You, as, the, as lessons have continued to evolve, it's about interjecting. I'm definitely interjecting and seeing teachers interjecting more piano into those lessons. And as for time, I was a 30-minute girl. I know... People like 45 minutes, but I know that, but I like, well, first of all, part of my life was based on scheduling. So Mm -hmm. most of my teaching was done remotely. And if I was in a childcare center or a preschool, I had to stick to a half hour session because I had three-year-olds coming in or four-year-olds or five-year-olds. I also like them wanting more when they leave. I want them to be like, oh, class is over. I'm like, yeah, that's all right. We're coming back next week and this is what we're going to do. And, and that's okay. So um, and leave them on a, the high note of, uh, of us wanting more um, and uh, kind of succinctly moving through the lesson. And it's, I personally must have got it to a comfort point where I could do a song introduction, do a fine motor review review the concept, introduce a new concept, do a gross motor activity, and then we close class out. So for me, 30 minutes was a lesson time. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I've certainly taught in 30 minutes, and it is doable with preschoolers, but I always prefer that little bit of extra time. I probably um, understand. That makes sense. Yeah. So what stuff do you need or do you advise teachers to have? They need a piano, or then maybe they need a piano. Or do they want multiple pianos? And what other things would you have them get? Rhythm instruments, that kind of stuff. 
Sure. So uh, one piano is all I think is necessary uh, because they're going to um, take turns in my particular group classes and, and explore the piano. So I encourage them either to be an audience and they're going to listen. Um, and I do, I like to call it conversational teaching. So with that one key, with that one keyboard, when one child is improvising, you know, I would say Johnny's using his right hand fingers, number two and three, and he's playing some low sounds. Oh, those are long sounds. We might call that a half note. Oh, I think Johnny's playing forte now. So I, I like to have one keyboard because it allows for that focused activity while a child is improvising. Now, if you have that group of rowdy gens that we've mentioned earlier, they might be uh, working on one of their activity sheets while the child is taking their turns to improvise. But again, I can conversationally teach. So I think one keyboard or piano is a, a must-have. If we're going to be a piano prep kind of program, there's got to be a piano, right? Yeah. I think rhythm instruments, yeah, hands down, they're a must-have. But that, that's a small child size, certainly indestructible ones, because we want them up and moving and marching. And that's another great way to explore sound while they're playing an instrument. So I think rhythm instruments are at the top of the list. So we've covered instruments. Um, games. Now, to me, my philosophy of games at a game, my first priority is the game is for teaching and for learning, and fun is the wonderful byproduct of that. So I very much like teaching games because you can have fun playing, but I want to make sure we're learning while we're doing this. So I like games. I especially like games that get them up and moving because it does the whole two birds, one stone thing. Mm -hmm. uh, movement is so important. Um, so if we can have um, anything that's physical um, at the same time of game, that's a big win. I like stories. I like children to have the visual component. I'm not sure if by you, but here in the United States, it used to be called theory of multiple intelligences and multiple learning styles. And, oh, I know, right? And you probably see residuals of that. It's the, old, the oral learner, the visual learner, the tactile kinesthetic learner. And um, those were great buzzwords. And now it's called more often differentiation. And that is just applying an idea in multiple ways. So for a child that does like to see something visually, that's why I like a storybook. I like them to be able to see a picture that teaches them as well, and then married to words. So uh, for that child, for their differentiation, I like to see a story. I like to see a good collection of music because music is listening, right? We want them to hear high sounds, low sounds, and to be exposed yeah. to that and different tempos. So I think good music is at the core of a good music and movement program, right? And instruments and a piano and visual things like stories and then uh, manipulatives, things that they can hold, notes that they can move around, staffs that they draw and markers, chips that they can move on their own staffs, things that allow them to explore creatively that are particular to that child themselves. So if I give them a, a staff, a cloth staff, a laminated staff, and I give them you know, like red, we call them poker chips or bingo chips mm -hmm. um, or plastic notes, giving them the freedom, anything that gives them the freedom to create and express their own musical thoughts. And if they draw a staff first and it has 20 lines, I like to joke that it looks like early Gregorian chant. I always think, well, perhaps that child is going to be the next inventor of what becomes standard notation yeah. and well you just never know right yeah um, no yeah and Absolutely. i also think why should they think that the only music that they can play is what somebody buys in the store and gives them them one day so i want them to very much feel that they are the creators mm -hmm. that they are the creators that are their music destiny if you will and any tool that i can put in front of them that allows them to explore and create to me is whether it's homemade 
um, or something that is purchased to me is one of a, a critical tool. Mm, absolutely. Okay, that's great. But that's not a, an expensive collection, is it? It's not a huge investment. They already have a piano, most teachers, uh, if they're teaching piano lessons anyway. Maybe they need to pick up a few rhythm instruments and maybe a few things to move about, but none of it is expensive. Most of that could be found at a dollar store, you know, the chips and stuff like that. Definitely. It, it yeah. doesn't have expensive. What is it? You give a child a paper box and they turn it into a Yeah, form. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's talk about the business side of things a little bit. What do you recommend in terms of the fees, especially since you're talking about group lessons? Do you have any kind of standard formula that you could share with us or any advice that you give to teachers about that? Sure. Um, I typically say that for us locally in the Midwest, this is a relatively conservative part of the country. About half of the private piano lesson rate is a group rate. So just to make an easy number, if a person locally charged $10 for a 30-minute lesson, their per-child 30-minute class rate would be $10. That seems to fall in line, not very much differently demographically throughout the country. So about half of the private piano rate, or um, I, would, I would assume 45 minutes to 45 minutes again would be the rate. Um, it's pretty straightforward to figure out that way. And another thing I suggest to teachers is to find out what is locally going on. What are your dance classes charging? What is gymnastics charging? This is very different, and this is more education-based. Um, at least for our purposes with Kitty Key, so I say it shouldn't be charged less than that, certainly. I feel it should be charged a little higher end than that, but about half of the private piano lesson. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify there, sorry, did you say 20, $20 for 30-minute private and then $10 for... For the group. Now, yeah. if somebody is doing private kitty keys, which teachers do, I, I always counsel them to charge exactly what they're charging. Oh, for yeah. Lesson, right? Absolutely. Lesson, right? Yeah. It's your time. It doesn't matter if the student is smaller. And anyway, they're going to take more energy. So <laughs> you need at least the same fee for sure. I, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> Okay, let's get into the the nitty-gritty of it then. Did you have a structure for planning your lessons? Did you have a particular way you laid out your plans when you were first working on this, especially when you were getting started and not so much planning them for other teachers, but um, when you were first establishing these lessons, did you have a structure that worked for you for actually laying it out? And how much detail did you go into with the plans? Because teachers are always curious about the topic of lesson planning. Right. So when Kitty Keys first started, we had 30-minute classes, and then we tried 40-minute classes, and then we tried 45-minute classes. Um, There was a lot of experimentation with time. So it's funny that eventually we settled on 30. And um, the lesson plans were uh, not nearly as uh, tight as they are now. They were loosely based on my classroom teaching. I will say that because, you know, I had reason for it in my elementary school that I was at teaching. Um, so I, I knew we needed to start with a song and there was a, and I knew an opening song was important and a closing song because any child likes to feel that comfort of the, the order of their life. Yeah. And so by keeping things, you know, this is our opening song, this is our closing. And I knew that there needed to be something gross motor in there somewhere. Um, and then the rest of it was derived in, or, you know, came from the wanting to be teaching in the course of it. So started by laying out the trajectory of the concepts and looked at what a typical first year of piano lesson was. And those became the order of the concepts. 
So starting with keyboard geography, high and low, then piano and forte. And just like you would most primer books start in, that was the, that's the identical trajectory that, you know, was like, okay, this is what, you know, kitty keys will follow. So they were just sheets of paper that I thought it would be fun to take the children outside and listen to music, listen to the birds chirping. That was music. I think I, I went through a hippie phase almost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. While it uh, became more of the, probably took a year of experimentation to see what was always going to work and what needed to always be there. And eventually it became, you know, the, the plans that exist now, which again, if I look at them, they look very much like my school lesson plans were, was that the opening song mm-hmm. and a uh, review of what was done. Um, I have a theory about review and always a fine motor, always a, an introduction of a new concept, always a gross motor, the activity sheet that would go along that gives them that visual and completing something at home, and then the closing song. So there's always those components. Every mm-hmm. single lesson has that. And then I always tell teachers, the development of each of them is what determines what's going to happen in class. Because you shouldn't stop teaching something simply because it's time to move on to the next item. It's not, teaching isn't a checklist. Mm-hmm. Teaching being where they are and wanting what that teachable moment is going to be for them today. And if they are enjoying and participating in one of the activities, I will stop them just because there's three more activities I want to get to that day. That's not teaching, uh, at least to me. So mm-hmm. um, they're much tighter now, but they were very, they were very willy nilly in the beginning while uh, we figured out what the plan should be. Yeah. But you've kept those different aspects of the welcome song. And I think that's so true. It's so important to have some predictability, especially since little little minds and little fingers can't follow time at all in the same way we can. So when they hear that opening song, they know that your know, class is starting. Miss Chris is ready to yeah. go and I need to settle myself and be ready too. Or if they're involved in some activity and class needs to be over, that signal of that closing song lets them, gives them that oral cue. And so much of this is an oral cue, right? Mm-hmm. That, okay, well, class is done. I need to put the can down or I need to put the instrument back. Um, Miss Chris has moved to the door. She's singing this song. My, my class time is done. So yeah, they can't read. They, unless they have symbols on a board or a poster board they're following, theirs is a sound cue. So a good cue for uh, beginning and end, I think, even for a piano, since if somebody was doing a piano, pre- preschool piano lesson, having them always do the same thing when they start, yeah. And hear that oral cue when the time is wrapping up is it's just that gives a child comfort and confidence in their day, in their schedule, in their life. And let's face it, they they're expected to roll all the time with everything. It's all new. Um, yeah. Every class is new. Every day is new. Um, sometimes I think we as adults have a harder time rolling with things than little children do. Um, yeah. But they can get they can get a bit lost. And that question that I think frustrates many teachers, because, you know, when kids ask, oh, are we done yet? And a lot of preschoolers will ask that. And it's not because they're not having fun or they don't like the lesson. It's because they literally have no idea where we are in time and space. Yeah, we do. We tend to hear that and we think, oh, no, they're not. Yeah, I'm failing about their life they just want to know no we've got a few more activities or we have three more things yeah i even think for teachers that would have a visual cue and they could literally move down the line if they wanted to let's say in a class or lesson they had four three four five things they wanted to do if they had a visual board that you know the child could physically move it down or maybe the child has some control and picks the order of things that's good for a child to see that 
either it's something visual or something oral so that they know what's coming. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's exactly what I have in my studio, our little pictures that we set up ourselves and they can see, okay, the game's coming up later. I can wait for it because I can see these things are in front of it, you know? They know what's coming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So many teachers, when we talk about preschool lessons, and especially you'll see this around Facebook groups and stuff like that, when preschool teaching comes up, many teachers will claim that they're just not ready still, even though the trend has maybe moved down to, to the younger ages. But many teachers will still chime in and say, I just don't think this four-year-old is ready for lessons I don't think they can concentrate for enough time. And I think we've already hinted at how that's not an issue in your classes, Chris, but have you ever found the attention spans to be a problem? And if you don't think they're a problem, why not? Well, it's probably less of a problem for me because I would have had them in a group class and yeah. so we would have had that. But I have had four-year-olds in panel lessons because of the nature of the circumstances were that's what the parent wanted to have. and so. I have seen children that I would say I felt were not ready for lessons. But I think every child can be given a piano lesson in, if you alter the format to meet what that child mm -hmm. needs. It doesn't have to be, okay, let's just stick with the 30 minutes, if you will. It doesn't have to be 15 minutes on the bench, 15 minutes off the bench. It doesn't have to be any ratio of one or the other. Maybe it's five minutes on the bench and it's 25 minutes away on the bench, off the bench. I think it's finding that happy medium of what that child needs that has sometimes has very little to do with playing at the piano. So if it's, and I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm saying is in essence, they could be having what to us, maybe as teachers would be more of a music and movement class with some applied piano time. Yeah. I think it's about changing the perception of what it's supposed to look like. So I would never say no to a parent. If they insisted, no, I need a one-on-one -on -one piano lesson for my four-year-old, I, I would probably discourage lesson four because I think they belong in kitty keys. So if I'm, if I'm believing that, if I believe they belong in a group, I kind of have to stick with that. If somebody else wants to take a three and a three-and-a-half-year-old, but they, that, then they can and they should. Does it mean I wouldn't? know how to teach a three and a half year old? No, I just, you know, I would prefer them to be in a social group. So I think that it comes down to tailoring and adjusting our adult perception and to put adult perceptions on a child's experience, yeah. right? Yeah. And just because the parent has asked for piano lessons doesn't mean it needs to match what our lessons might look like with an eight or a seven or a six year old. It's not going to. And anybody that tries to do that, you know, I see them and they're like, oh, it didn't go well. It was horrible. They were all over the place. Yeah. They're being a child. And the change isn't in what has to happen with the child. The change is in what has, is, has to happen with our perception and reality and teaching the child. So, so true. It's just a case of, yes, transplanting a three or four-year-old into a nine-year-old's lesson and going, they can't concentrate. Yeah. Oh, of course they can concentrate. They're not in the right environment. So, yes. When I see teachers do that, I always think, did they shake their wiggles up? Because little ones need to move. And if you can't get them moving and they're not going to sit on the bench, they can't. I mean, they, they're just not developmentally capable of that. Get them up every three minutes and shake out their wiggles. Turn on some music. You, you get the benefit of an aerobics class yourself as part of the lesson, right? <laughs> so true. Us to teach these lessons. 
<laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Have you ever had students, Chris, in your classes who wouldn't follow your directions or wouldn't copy what you were doing in particular? Because this is something where I've had particular students who, and I get them through this eventually, but they're not interested in mimicking. Does that make sense? So they're not interested in copying. And that makes the rest of what you're doing so hard to teach a rote song, to teach them to sing something, to teach them to do an activity. If they're not interested in copying what you just did, it can be very hard. Oh, very hard. I have had plenty of those children. I think that actually one of the, I think, classroom management even applies to piano lessons. And that's not a skill that we often see in pedagogy classes or mm-hmm. even any adolescent training. It's, it's still about classroom management. It's about managing that child who doesn't want to listen or is headed somewhere else. I've seen plenty of them. And my take on that is having good guidelines in place from the beginning that are, we're going to keep our hands to ourselves. We won't touch another person with our instruments or um, giving them a seat on the floor, you know, whether it's a large color dot or a carpet square, so they understand where home base is. But as long as they are not hurting someone else, affecting someone else, if they need to be distracted, I don't assume they're not learning because they may not be doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, a case in point, bingo. I love playing music bingo with little kids. Piano bingo, right? Yeah. So all the red chips are in the middle of the table, and all the children have their playing card and these nice big symbols that I hold up. But invariably, there's a child that is taking those beautiful red chips and they make a tower. And they build a beautiful tower on their bingo board. Now, I am I'm holding up these cute little pictures and I'm teaching and I'm talking. You know, this is, you know, a ball bouncing high, high sounds. And uh, they build a beautiful tower and, oh, Miss Chris, look at my tower. And, and I, you know, celebrate the tower. Maybe they're going to be an engineer one day. But invariably, they come back the next week and they have learned because mm. they were listening to everything I was saying. So I don't gauge that not copying that as not learning. They just may be processing it differently than what it looks like the child next to them is processing. Or they take a, a red chip and they fill up every square on their bingo card and, oh, Miss Chris, it's done. Fantastic. Can you take them off and do it again? Yeah, that, that whole idea, uh, unless they're being sassy, I would call it sassy damaging something, interrupting someone else's learning. Yeah. I'm okay with them not doing either copying or maybe doing, copying. yeah, doing exactly what's prescribed. Exactly. Exactly yeah. what's prescribed. If it looks like they're not paying attention, I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't need their attention. I just need them to be not bothering those around them because I yeah. assume that ears are turned on and they're, they're doing what they need to do to, participate in that class yeah to be engaged bait it's called bait but if they want to if they just can't wait to get to the marching if that's their thing Mm -hmm. you know what their benefit in in being that good listener and waiting or just not bothering the child is that i will let them be the leader first then because they will have done a good job waiting at that point so i know teachers use stickers i've not ever had to do that um i think i would resort to it if i had to but yeah, haven't we all had those children that, you know, they walk out the door and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I haven't taught them anything in 30 minutes, um, right? It's like, oh my God, we had, I taught them nothing. What would the parents think? And they're going to they come back the next week and they learn. So again, that's that adult perception, right? 
Yeah, yeah, no, it is totally the adult perception. Speaking of the parents, though, have you ever had a parent who was pushing for more progress than was happening or had some expectation of what they were going to be doing that wasn't happening? Or do you have a way of laying that out from the start so that they don't get the wrong idea, as it were? Well, you lay it out from the start, but like many parents, they miss, sometimes they miss that message. We all have those parents. I'm guilty of missing messages myself, so I'm trying to be better about that. Yes. And then I remind them of the, you know, what we've discussed. And I always try to assuage their concerns because if they really feel that, you know, Johnny again, it's always Johnny. If they feel that Johnny would benefit from more piano time, I can integrate that. I can give Johnny a little role piece and then I will follow the parent and say, this is what I've given Johnny to work on. And invariably, nothing happens with it at home, but they feel that I've challenged Johnny in the class. I put the ball in their court then to continue bouncing the ball in between. Um, and then that becomes, you know, I, I've satisfied their need. If they feel Johnny is capable, I can, I can work that around. Because it usually comes down to piano. You know, they want them to have more yeah. you know, time. Or I can give Johnny a very basic little piece of paper, you know, a little song based on C, and Johnny's supposed to practice at home. So, yeah, I give them that, we work on it, and then I drop the ball in the parents' lap and say, here you go, there's something you can practice with Johnny at home during the week. And they're, they're satisfied with that. So apart from to appease parents, do you ever assign pieces uh, for practice at home? Or do you avoid the topic of practice at this level? For kitty keys purposes, for straight kitty keys classes, group yeah. classes, we don't talk about practice. Yeah. Now, I don't personally. There are teachers that um, include those students in their recitals. Mm-hmm. And um, they, um, sorry, a little shameless plug here. Um, so I wrote Piano Playground recently, and I don't like yeah. to do that. I don't think that's what we're talking about so much. But because teachers were, because as time has gone on, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I taught kitty keys, that line has continued to creep, creep down again. And mm-hmm. they, you know, now they, you know, they want them playing in the recital. They want to see them doing something. So Piano Playground was born completely of that need for really good road pieces that we could move those children into and have them have recital pieces because that line continues to shade a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, no, for sure. I think with the parents, I haven't found that their expectations, at least where I am, are that high for what their child is going to do. I think it's normally the teacher who expects it and feels that the parent is expecting something that they're maybe not. So sometimes we just need to look at ourselves. But yes, I haven't checked out Piano Playground, but I have used the road trip books for this very reason because uh, they're fantastic and the duets, you know, are great for recitals. Yeah, so. thank you. And, you know, I, I think it's what each teacher, you know, it doesn't have to be Piano Playground, it doesn't have to be road trip. There are, you know, it can be just going into a new store and printing out some little basic song on C and D um, and having them do that. I think there are ways that we can amp that up. And I think you're exactly right. Sometimes we as teachers do it to ourselves. Mm. You know, it's like the child that sees a song and we'll use Road Trip as an example. There are several songs in To the Lake that are in G flat major. We don't need to explain to a child that that's G flat major. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Don't open the can of worms. Like, that's not necessary. (laughs) You're just going to use these black keys. Oh, yeah. Okay. No problem. We tend to over explain and we want to over explain and and maybe justify almost to the parents. And they're not looking for that. And children are certainly not looking for over explanations. They don't even know the explanation exists. Mm. So, uh, yeah, sometimes 
Um, I think I, I would say to teachers, that it's, it's okay to expect what you want to have happen, but to be prepared to accept the goodness that's there instead of, you know, looking for deeper and more and knowing that you can accommodate. There's, there's lots of little children playing in recitals and they steal the show, don't they? They do. No matter what they play, they could play a single C and they would win the whole day. I mean, you can get away with anything. (laughs) When I was teaching elementary school, I had the kindergartners and every year we put on this wonderful spring program and I worked on that program so many hours and uh, one, are you young enough to, old enough to remember the Macarena dance? <laughs> That's okay. still, everyone still knows the Macarena. Don't worry. So I taught it to the kindergartners. And there was one little kindergartner that, due to circumstances out of his control, he just, he missed school pretty frequently. But he, well, when he was there, he, he was one of those that didn't listen. And we, they got on the stage and the music came on and they started to do the Macarena, these cute little kindergartners. But who did everybody notice? The little ham who hadn't been practicing and he was all over the place with his Macarena and everyone focused on him. And it was in that moment that I realized that teachers tend to put really hard, unfair expectations on ourselves. Mm. We expect perfection. And while I think we should, you know what, At that, in that moment, I realized that, you know what, he was having a great time. The audience was having a good time. The parents were watching their own children. I was the one who needed to alter my perception Mm. of what those parents behind me wanted to see. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I know we put so much pressure on ourselves. You're totally right. And yes, we would never put that kind of pressure on someone else, on on one of our students. We would never expect this perfection, but yet... For our own teaching, we expect it. You know, I don't know about you, but during my piano recitals, my toes would be curled in my shoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. I always say that I get far more nervous than most of the kids do. (laughs) Maybe it's because we want so much for them. And maybe more than anything else, it's not, you know, perfection for a bad reason. We just, we want them to feel, you know, want them to do their best. Yeah. Mistakes, that's okay. Yeah, no, we just want to provide a good experience from them. But sometimes, yes, we need to sit back, let them do their own Macarena in their own style. <laughs> I can still, to this day, I can picture him. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So, after Kitty Key, is there a certain age where um, students graduate from? Kitty Key's style teaching and would you delay reading up until that or not delay reading it's not really the right way to say it but would you wait to do proper quote-unquote reading up until that point well actually we include reading in Kitty Keys so they learn okay. F and G and then trouble C D E F G. so we don't delay it in the first year they learn about the trouble cup the base cup and middle C so trouble G based at the middle C I don't believe in shying away from teaching them. Again, I think they can learn the language and if they can understand the geography of the piano, they can find those things. But we don't get into reading in terms of, here's a piece of music, now I want you to decode it and read it. I'm more inclined to go in the road department um, and you know we've learned about C, this is where it is, and now you play this song on C. So Kitty Keys is generally like two and a half to four or five and sometimes six-year-olds that just are a piano lesson experience is not where they are yet. I think that um, by the time they're four and five, 
they they can they can start moving now with especially with the materials that are available, right? Um, in the books that I would have used growing up, I think I used John Thompson. Me too. Um, <laughs> little fingers to play. Yeah. Those wouldn't have been the books, great books to necessarily use with a four-year-old and a five-year-old, but there's enough options now that are written with them in mind. So I still, I still see, you know, I like to see a child even at four or five, but I can see the benefits of getting them on the piano more and uh, at like, say, four or five. I don't like yeah. to rush them into that. They've got, they've got their life to do piano lessons. We want them to do it for their life, right? Yeah. And we want to take the time to build that fantastic foundation right. of this really enjoyable lesson experience, whatever that is for them, so right. that they do continue to play for the rest of their life. Yeah, exactly. Or you know what? I think it should come down to when their fine motor skills are ready. Because if they aren't able to manage, you know, and we're always working on good hand shape and, and finger numbers and fine motor skills, but if they're not ready to be there yet, I'd like to see their, their lessons be less about that and more or still about the foundation, so that when they do get ready for that, they the language is nothing to them. They understand the language. Children can learn anything. When I mean, we can explain eighth notes to a quarter note, I think up to eighth notes to a quarter note. We can explain eighth notes to a child. Try yeah. to explain a quarter note. <laughs> That'll be a challenge. You know, the, the language isn't the problem with them. It's where they are physically, right? It's where they, you know, are their hands ready? Can they use those fingers and you know, if we are going to put them in lessons, we better be prepared then to adapt and focus maybe on finger two and three if that's where, you know, if that yeah. song is still indicated to use one, two, three, four, five, it's okay to not play what's on the page. You shouldn't. Exactly. If you're good with, you know, just their right hand figure two or three, then you need to adapt that lesson um, for that child. Yes. And is that what you're doing when you are teaching them rote songs and things? Do you just let the child choose which finger they're using? Like whichever one they naturally go for, they use that one? Or do you tell them to use finger two? Or I will initially ask them to try using fingering that's indicated. But if that is not a fingering they can do, or I may even say to them, what finger would you choose? Mm. Um, I try both ways. This is written for finger two of your right and your left hand. Let's try it like that. Now, which finger would you choose to use? Because I think children should get a choice um, mm -hmm. if they're you know, more comfortable with that. Okay, now you chose that one. Now let's try finger five of your right and your left hand because, of course, it's okay to try, to try those things. But, yeah, I would give them some latitude. I would, it would be the balance. This is what's indicated. Let's try that. Does it work? Let's adapt and, and do what does work. Yeah, fantastic. I'd love if you could tell us a bit about how you see the role of singing in your lessons? Because you've mentioned the opening song and the closing song. And I'm wondering, first of all, are you singing all of the time throughout the whole lesson or is it in bits and pieces? And are the kids singing along with you when you're doing that? Bits and pieces. Songs like games are for learning. Fun is the byproduct. And the yeah. children are singing along. So um, they're all of the songs, at least for Kitty Key's purposes, are rhyming and they're largely piggybacked. So piggyback is taking twinkle twinkle little star and changing oh, right, okay. to, to meet them so uh, many familiar songs that have music based verses so they're intermittent but they're meant to further the learning so we do have the opening song and then the some of the finger plays are done in song and then the concept so every um when we did high and low that has a song that goes with them so i i like them vocalizing i like them hearing that's a great way to you know discover pitch you know they're not going to necessarily sing on pitch but they can mm -hmm. um it's good for working on their inner beat um so we use songs to further the lessons for teaching and then you know to go along with to move 
Yeah. Okay. So you've answered my question about pitch because a lot of teachers will fret a little bit when a student of whatever age is not singing, is not finding pitch. And my solution is always basically just keep singing. That's the solution. You just keep doing it. Yeah. That's like developmental, right? They're, they're not going to necessarily sing on pitch. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Some of them will, some of them won't, some of them may never. Um, are they singing along and having a good time? Yeah. Are they singing the rhythm of the song? If that's the case, they're taking away the knowledge of the mm-hmm. rhythm, right? Feeling it. Maybe not necessarily the, the notation of it, but certainly feeling it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't get hung up on pitch well. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, I'm singing along and I will sing on pitch, but I'm no professional singer myself. <laughs> Nor am I. <laughs> yeah. And what about a kid who is just incredibly shy and will not make a peep when you're singing? Do you ask them to sing, encourage them in some way, or do you just let them at it? Let them be. Yeah. They, I, think that, uh, I think that they are where they need to be and they're doing what they need to do. And it's, I, would never, I would never force, or I certainly encourage everyone to sing together, but if, if the child isn't singing, then that's what they need to do. And that's how they need to take in the lesson and that be okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. Same as building the tower with the tokens, right? It's the same thing. That's their way of taking it in. Let them add it. That's right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay, fantastic. I would love it if you could talk us through maybe briefly what a first lesson might look like in Kitty Keys. Like how would it actually start and some of the activities that you would do in the lesson just to give people a sense of what it actually feels like and looks like in practice? Sure. So the first lesson, there's a lot of introduction because it's all new to a child, right? They haven't been in a class. They don't know that this is the beginning. This is the end. So I always would start by teaching them the actions to the Kitty Key song, and then we would sing it together. And part of that is clapping and singing because we're always working on keeping a steady beat and it gives them something to do again with their bodies. So we would start with that. And as a means of ice breaking, there's a little welcome song. So we would have each child introduce themselves because we want them to feel comfortable getting to know our names. Our name is important. Our name is important to us. Our name is important to the parent who gave us that name. So um, we want to acknowledge their name. And then we would move always into something fine motor based. So we would do a couple of finger plays that are fun. I like to do things that are icebreakers that get them moving and something with maybe a surprise action that they can laugh and, and release because they may be a little bit nervous too, just like mm. the teacher be nervous for the first time. I like to start right in with the uh, with either a composer. My composer of choice is to teach them about Mozart. Um, and so we talked about singing earlier. We we, we put the Mozart song to uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Listen close and we will spell Mozart's name and give a yell. I like school concepts, so we're going to spell his name. M-O-Z-A-R-T, Mozart, music with me. Listen close and we will spell Mozart's name and give a yell. Mozart. Oh, M-O-Z-A-R-T, Mozart, Mozart, Mozart. There you go. That is me. So cute. So um, we haven't touched on this. A big focus of what we do is not just music, but school skills and life skills. So mm-hmm. if I talk I would teach and introduce them to Mozart. I want to teach them how to spell his name, and we have a visual tool for doing that. If that's my lesson, that's what I'm going to do. We're talking about Mozart. I want to read the story about Mozart that introduces them to Mozart and his sister Nanerl and his third dog Vimperl, and a little bit about their life to bring Mozart to life for them. If I've done instead the lesson on high and low, um, we're going to get the piano out at that time or the keyboard, and 
I would have them come up after I explain it to them and or show them and have them each improvise a piece on high and low sounds. Um, same thing if I've done Mozart, I would have them come up and improvise a piece and create a piece like Mozart did when he was writing songs. And when he was their age, if he was four years old, and children love that. Then I'd get up, always up and moving. If they have a lot of wiggles at that first class, the movement gets wiggled way up to the front because you can't fight the wiggles. If they've got a wiggle, you've got a wiggle. And yeah. then you're back. There's, there's no point. Teachers that, you know, like they were all over the place. I just want to say, just get them up and get them moving. Um, so they would wiggle. And then we always have an activity sheet that we do um, for Mozart. It's to find the letter M-O-Z-A-R-T in a little letter search. Uh, for high and low, we want them to see an, uh, an image on the concept of high. So they're getting that spatial connection. They also have a song that they do that catches them reaching high and reaching low. Um, so we have that very kinesthetic activity. And then uh, usually class is over and we have our little closing song that goes in there. So depending on every single concept has, I will always have a story I read. Every single concept has a song that we're going to do. Um, and then that's always the meat that's in. The subsequent lessons are always review after the opening song. So we right. always go and review maybe one little thing the Heinle song or about Mozart spelling his name. And each week we go back because here's my theory of review, if you don't mind. Oh, review. Yeah. review leads to comfort and confidence. Comfort and confidence lead to confidence. Mm. Confidence is the goal. It's okay to review and review and review as long as we need to, to reach that end stage of confidence. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. I have one final question and that's about I want you to imagine a teacher who is already teaching piano, but they're just diving into maybe teaching three to five-year-olds. They've never taught anyone below age six or seven before. What tips would you give them? And are there any mistakes, that common mistakes maybe, that you think they could avoid? My tip number one is that it's okay to be silly, and they should be a little silly. You have to be a bit of an entertainer. Mm. Um, that would be number one. That would be, you know, don't be afraid to be silly, make faces, make funny sounds, use puppets, use whatever it takes to engage the child in the lesson. Have a plan, have a backup plan, and then be prepared to deviate from that plan. If, if the teachable moment gets you stuck somewhere else, or if they're not into something after 30 seconds, that it's okay to abandon ship. That whole idea of adult perception, that be okay with perfect imperfection. It is not going to look perfect except that, and you will relieve yourself of much of the stress of teaching little children. They just want to learn. They just want to hang out. They either want to have, they want to have fun or they want to play while they're learning to play within the parameters of functioning in a class that to be okay with that perfect perfection that's coming. Um, those are mistakes I made. I thought it should, you know, there's nothing like being a green first year teacher and thinking things are going to go a certain way. They're not. <laughs> They're going to school you in a hurry. That, that is not, that, that's not what's yeah. happening. Who's really in charge? <laughs> yeah, you find that in a hurry, right? I think that it's important to look at each child as an individual and measure success only for that child. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous to compare them all to each other or assume that developmentally there's a line across the board that's based on age. It doesn't exist. And each child deserves to be seen for who they are. 
and where they are. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's really important. Um, but to, you know, be okay with, let them wiggle, let them get up and move, plan to roll with things and uh, to try not to see their, through the eyes of the adult, see it through the eyes of the child. Wonderful. That's such fantastic advice. And thank you so much again for joining me for this interview. I know tons of teachers will get a lot out of it. Tell us where they can find out about Kitty Keys and more about you, Chris. Um, we have a website, www.kittykeys.com. That's K-I-D-D-Y-K-E-Y-S. Um, and they can reach me through the website or they're free to send me an email, certainly. Um, Chris, K-R-I-S, at kittykeys.com. And I'm also on Facebook. They are welcome to find me. And uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions. And, and certainly, I think we all do better when we're supportive of each other. So happy for them to reach out and be happy to connect with them. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. I'll chat to you soon. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris today. We have two more interview shows on the way over the next two weeks with Karina Bush from Germany and Lindell Kennedy from Australia. I'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. If you'd like to grab my new book, you can pick it up by going to playfulpreschoolpiano.com and clicking on whichever link suits you for where to purchase it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.